We acknowledge that we are settlers recording this podcast from the lands and waterways of Hawaii and Bubumin country. We stand with the first peoples of the lands and waterways that we occupy, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and Kanaka Mo'oli peoples, as well as acknowledging our own peoples of Olohanga for our continued and united fight for self-determination and land back. From sand to salt water, we extend our deepest aloha to Tupuna past, present and future. We are leaning in, learning and listening. Dombuluminaka, malo ni, talafalava, and aloha. Welcome to the third episode of Sawatakin. My name is Emile Ungavule, and I am a co-host of Sawatakin alongside the amazing Brandon Takadina. If you love the podcast and want to show your support, you can buy us a coffee via the link in our show notes or leave us a review. So in our third episode, we are speaking with someone I truly fangirl, Tammy Ha'iliopua Baker. And when I say fangirl, I mean I've been following her work in theatre making in Hawaii for some time now, and she has had a profound influence on my practice. Ha'iliopua is an incredibly accomplished storyteller and academic, and she was so humble in our Tolanoa. I was so speechless listening to her speak. All I could say on repeat was wow about 10 million times throughout this episode. So apologies in advance for that. But um, let me start with some background info about Ha'iliopua for those listeners who don't know her. Tammy Ha'iliopua Baker is an associate professor in the Department of Theatre and Dance at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. As a director, playwright, theatre educator, scholar, her work centres on the development of an indigenous Hawaiian theatre aesthetic and form, language revitalization and the empowerment of cultural identity through stage performance. Oh gosh, yes. Let's get into it. Yandra Vinaka, Hailiopua, welcome to Soul Watakin. We are so, so, so humbled to have you with us today. How are you? Mahalo Anui for this invitation. I'm Waikai. I'm good. I'm well. And just very happy to be here with you and Brandon. I'm glad to hear that you're well. Um, yeah, we're very stoked. I'm I'm very stoked to have you joining us, taking some time out of your day to to Talanoa with us today. So we've started by hearing your formal bio, but I'm wondering if you could please introduce yourself in your own words. Oh, mahalo for this opportunity. And you know, I am just a little girl from the island of Kauai who decided to venture off to the big city of Oahu mm-hmm. uh, in Honolulu and <laughs> actually never went back to Kauai when I moved to Oahu after graduating high school. The idea was that, you know, I would come here to study and then maybe move off to the continental United States mm-hmm. and take my stab at acting directing, doing something on, you know, what typically people think as the major stages up in on the West Coast or on the East Coast of America. And while I was in my first year, actually, at the university, there was a lot of uh, key milestones, I think, key moments and key shifts for me that shifted my perspective where I needed to be. And one of those things I would say was meeting my partner, Kaliko, and he and I realizing that Olelo Hawaii needed our commitment. And so 
there was this realignment that happened with what I had thought was my goals to become an actor. And I realized around that time, the passing actually of my uncle, who I was meant to move in with in San Francisco, that I needed to be here. And there was this recentering with my Pico, which was the place of my mother, where she was born and where she was raised here on the island of Oahu in Heiakea. And in that first year, I had, and of course, going into college, you start to learn all these different things that you had not thought about. And one of the things that hit me, people were, they were trying to express their, their Hawaiian-ness or their Kanaka-ness. And identity was something that was front and foremost for a lot of people. And in college, I had realized that I was raised in a very typical Hawaiian style, very close to the aina, growing our own food, raising our own cattle, and being raised in an environment that we never talked about who we were, but we were very much intrinsically connected to the aina, to the land, and to one another. And we had these shared value systems. So in college, I started realizing the value of the upbringing that I had. I started realizing how important it was to further my knowledge in the language of my ancestors and also to be home and to not go chase after a dream. It was that first couple years of college that everything realigned and I started to pay attention to the signs of what my path was meant to be. Yeah, so growing up somewhere very rural, not really talking about who you were, and then coming to college where there was a bunch of Hawaiians from diaspora on campus that were very, very much wanting to express who they were taking the language and being very active. And myself, I noticed kind of falling into understanding and not having spoken about who I was or what I was or how I was raised. Prior to that, all of that surfaced in rolling into Papa Ole Hawaii or Hawaiian language class. And then I guess we fast forward a couple years I started realizing that being a theater major, I was surrounded by Hawaii and I was trying to emulate that world and not realizing that we could carve a space for us in that world. And so during my final year undergraduate, I had this dream to do a senior thesis and with the support of two of my professors, I fell into writing my first play in Olawa Hawaii. And it was only because one of my colleagues who was finishing up his master's degree, he was from Hawaii as well. His name was Rafi Napori. And he was working with Kumu John Lake on uh, his second production, retelling the death of Keowa. You know, they had worked in this production. It was primarily in English and there was the practice of chant and the practice of hula in that production. But I remember searching high and low after I got the support from my faculty advisors for a script in Olelo Hawaii that I just wanted to direct. I never thought I wanted to write. I wanted to direct something and take a stab at that. 
And Rapley actually sat me down and said, if it doesn't exist, then you need to write it. <laughs> and of course, this was after exhausting the resources that were available, going to the libraries and Bishop Museum and the archives and not coming up with any Olelo Hawaii's. So that kind of propelled me into doing a Master's of Fine Arts in Directing. And each and every step, I would say, of this realization of what my kuleana or what my responsibility was going to be, I would say I was trained for as a child and not even knowing it. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about that later on, but this idea of storytelling and being raised in a family with orators prepared me for that. And so here I am, how many years later, <laughs> writing, directing, and, and teaching and sharing the knowledge that I have gained. And it's a privilege to be in this position. It's a privilege to teach these art our ancestors practiced at a university. There was a, maybe a bit of a ramble, but that's who I am. <laughs> no, 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 no ramble, no ramble. Mahalo, mahalo piha for just sharing. Really grateful for you know the opportunity to be here to talk story with you. Grateful for just your presence and you know just that short, brief kind of introduction. If it's okay with you, Tammy, we're going to shift a little bit. I want to focus on, you wrote an article, the Olaka Mo'olalo, Perpetuating Our Stories Through Hawaiian Medium Theater. In the article, you're able to weave these, weave multiple threads together from traditional Hawaiian practice to a brief political analysis of the context of Hawaii. And then you provide some further context into your work in Hanakiaka Hawaiian Medium Theater. What we're interested in, or what I found really interesting, is the thread of your own story growing up in Kauai. So if you don't mind, we would love to hear more about your childhood, the role of pipi holaka'au, and then how this is connected to your current practice. Mahalo for that question. Yeah, so growing up, people don't believe this when I share this with them. For the first eight years of my life, the home that we grew up in, that my parents were renting, did not have a restroom. There was no toilet. There was no shower. We grew up in old plantation houses where there was an outhouse for everything. And my grandfather was a rancher. So we had cattle, we raised chickens, we raised food. <laughs> Our lifestyle taught me and ingrained in me work ethic. It taught me how to really commit to something. And of course, that work, right? The day in and day out of getting up early to grab the eggs from the chickens and do some cleaning and feed the animals. And then in the afternoon, going up to the pasture and taking care of the cattle. All of that, you know, was hard work. And it's probably why I work in the fashion that I work. And I get a lot of criticism from my immediate family in this house who tell me, you need to take a break. You need to take a break. But it's because I was raised working constantly, even on the weekends, that I think that's my mode of action. I'm always working. So that practice, along with the fact that we never had a television until we moved out of the plantation houses, and each and every night, the, the entertainment was ourselves. The entertainment was the retelling of stories. 
The entertainment was my uncles and my dad and my mother and my grandmother telling stories and us children putting on little shows. That was our entertainment. So all of that and listening to the stories is what I believe now in retrospect, what prepared me to be a good listener, to be a playwright. And all the little shows that I would get my sister and my cousins to perform and direct them along. And I was so grateful to my mother because all her scrap material she would give me. So I would sew little dresses and I would sew little things and make these props and not even realizing what we were doing at that time, but we were reenacting things we had saw on television or stories that we were told. So those practices and growing up poor (laughs) makes you be very resourceful. And I am really grateful for that lifestyle that taught me how to make the best out of what little you might have and how to enjoy the simple things in life and how to kind of honor one another when sitting in a circle and listening to one another speak and listening to storytelling. Then, you know, really at the core of theater is the practice of ha'imo'olelo, is the practice of storytelling. And, you know, this term, pipi holoka'au, that is a term that was utilized when a story was told at the end of a story. And that pipi holoka'au charges the listener with retelling that story. So you have the responsibility of taking that story that you had heard and sharing it. And so the work that I do today and the work that I've been doing for the past couple of decades has really just been fulfilling that call, fulfilling that charge to retell the stories that I've learned in my life. Wow, that's so amazing. What I see happening right now and you know, with the way we are going about our questions is this theme of Kuleana, right? You had mentioned before coming up, right? This responsibility to retell stories, this responsibility to stay in Hawaii and, you know, to further language revitalization and to enroll into a little Hawaii, Papa a little Hawaii, excuse me. I'm just really, really, really fascinated by that. I'm so grateful for that. Emily, did you want to share anything? Yeah, I feel uh, so happy <laughs> listening to you share your story. There's just so much that resonates and particularly where you were talking about, yeah, just going down this journey and I guess setting out this expectation for yourself about what your path would be and projecting that for yourself, wanting to become an actor and maybe thinking that you would leave for the continental US, but actually feeling more alignment in the call to go home and returning home and finding place in home and and where you were saying like if it doesn't exist you have to write it like those words coming to you and then you kind of embodying that in your practice is something that definitely deeply resonates with me as well you know particularly here and where I live which is on Bibbulmun country on Binjarabnuma country but where I also practice which is on the east coast in Gadigal country and Andara country, there's very few opportunities for us to see, you know, our own works, our own stories, that embodiment of uh, our languages and in our stories and our lens. And and I really like take that to heart, what you shared. Like if it doesn't exist, you have to write it because 
who else will, you know, and who else will be able to write it and create it from your own unique perspective. But also what you were sharing about, like, I think like your home life really instilling this sense of like work ethic and movement and that being foundational for for your practices, I think really, really interesting. And it makes me think about the steps that you have taken to further cultivate and develop your practice. And I'm wondering like, in where you kind of describe just now for us the links between your upbringing, you know, like living with and caring for these animals and, and being very like um, embodied and in, in the way that you engage with your environment. How do you feel like that in your educational journey? Um, as you mentioned earlier, you wanted to pursue like um, higher education and doing your postgraduate studies. And I think when I first started speaking to you, you had maybe just finished doing your PhD in Aotearoa. How, how did those kind of steps not move just through your theatre practice and your foundations of your upbringing, not just move through your theatre practice, but also through your, your journey, on your educational journey? And wondering holistically as well, like um, maybe like your spiritual journey or your emotional journey as well as your educational journey. I want to start with this concept of koho ia. Koho ia means to be selected something being determined for you, perhaps by your ancestors, perhaps in a spiritual way. So I really believe that every step of my path has been koho ia. It has been selected for me, and I've just fulfilled the path that was created. And this idea of Koho ia, I believe, aligns with many indigenous belief systems that kind of embrace the mystic functioning of the world. And as theater makers, we surrender ourselves to the desires of our elders and our gods and participate on that path that they have planned for us. And we do this knowing full well that the path leads us to lessons we must learn and to life-defining experiences, you know. Koho ia is very much connected to this concept of hilina'i, to have trust and have faith in our gods, faith in our kupuna, our ancestors. And it's something intrinsically spiritual. And the practice of hilina'i, I would say, as far as a playwright is concerned, or a director, it's really about being guided through that entire process of playmaking, knowing that the development will unfold in a manner in which it is meant to be, right? So we become the vessels, right? We become the vessels for the stories to be told, for the creation process to happen. And along the lines of these concepts of koho'ia and hilina'i, we must pay attention to all the different ho'ailona or all the different signs and omens along the way in order for this practice to be truly efficacious. When we can pay attention, when we can focus on those things, the path is simple. I think it's when we try to bucket and we don't pay attention, that's when our path gets difficult. So I think there's moments and lessons in my life that allowed me to cultivate a better understanding of ho'ailona, right? A better understanding of what those signs could be that, you know, my kupuna are sending me for something. So, and again, those are signs 
that might be something for someone and might not be for another. And it can be very simple things as something we see in the clouds. It could be in our dreams. It could be a coincidence, a change of path, perhaps. And one of the things that I recognize as far as my educational journey is concerned, if it wasn't for that senior thesis that I mentioned in retelling the story of Kalui Ko'olau from the island of Kauai, which I was with all intentions of honoring him in that retelling, but it was the telling of that story that opened the door for the next story to be told and the next story to be told. And in my educational journey, that production allowed the faculty in the Department of Theater and Dance to realize that I was a worthy candidate to move into the Masters of Fine Arts, right? And then in that path, another more doors opened. Fast forwarding years later, to going back to school at the University of Waikato for my doctoral study in the Faculty of Maori and Indigenous Studies. In a couple of years before I had entered the program, Kaliko and I had met Dr. Rangi Matamua, who was teaching there, a professor there. And it was that relationship and the unfolding of the work that was happening in Waikato and in Māoridam, if you will, uh, seeing the growth of their language revitalization efforts and seeing the connections that we had here, as well as the relationship that I had developed with Honekoka and Miria George. Those were the signs that the PhD was kind of on the horizon and I should go after that. So these meetings, these exchanges, I truly believe that our ancestors set those things up for us and they opened doors for us. And it's on us to take up that opportunity. It's on us to walk through the door that they opened for us and to have hilina'i, to have that trust and the faith that the door has been opened for a reason. And once we step over the threshold of that door, they will be there for the next step and the following step and the following step. So it is a holistic view of the world and a trusting of our ancestors and what they have set before us. You know, what was planned before we were even puka ikeao malama lama, yeah, before we even came out of our mothers into the world of light. It's an opportunity, right, for us to take those steps. And I'm going to stop right now before I ramble. No, please don't stop. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's definitely not rambling at all. It's absolutely, all of that is absolutely why we are so happy to have you on this podcast and yeah, just sharing, you know, sharing space with you and listening to you. I think so deeply poetic, the way that you express these ideas in creative vocabulary around how you, your journey came to be, but also like your calling, like that idea of koho ia. Did I say that correctly? Yes, yes, yes. That yes. Beautiful, that's such a beautiful and intangible feeling. And it's definitely something that I resonate with and that I believe really strongly. But I haven't, I mean, I don't have a term 
for it, but the way that you explained it, the idea of being selected for something, um, your path being determined for you by your ancestors and the choice to en- engage with it, I think is super powerful. I know that for so many of us, sometimes pursuing higher education can feel really daunting and overwhelming and an unsafe space or a space that um, we're unsure that we have the capacity or ability to kind of commit to. And, you know, even when you're in that journey, Um, maybe you'll get through the door but once you're there it can be hard to kind of see what you're doing there and and why you're there and what your purpose is but there's something really beautiful in what you were saying about being able to release that anxiety and the desire to kind of understand your place but know that you are exactly where you're meant to be I think is a really simple but powerful yeah powerful thought so definitely not a rant not a ramble at all (laughs) really really beautiful and poetic I also didn't I don't know how I I missed this but your PhD like your supervisor one of them being the um, Rangi Matumua I actually was listening to a podcast that he was on recently called Native Stories which is also based in Hawaii and he was just talking about astrology Maori astrology in such a, a beautiful way and he's an excellent storyteller much like yourself I'm not at all surprised that you were working together and learning from one another while you were on that journey of doing your PhD and love to kind of like use this as an opportunity to talk about you know what you wrote about in your PhD but also this article that we had mentioned earlier where you identify your practices hana keaka otherwise kind of like translated as traditional Hawaiian medium theater and I'm curious mm-hmm. if you'd be willing to share a little bit a little bit about what hana keaka is for some of our listeners who maybe don't know the difference between traditional Hawaiian medium theater and maybe western theater and and why you believe this movement is important for kanaka Maoli Mahalo ai. And as I answer this question, I want to express my deepest gratitude to my supervisor, Dr. Mata Mua, as well as my deputy supervisor, Dr. Hemi Faanga. The two of them, brilliant minds, and they are the reason why I was able to articulate these things in the doctoral thesis that I wrote. It's those conversations that we had, you know, in the midst of Uh, writing something solid on a document, right? It's those questions that Rangi would pose to me of, okay, so what makes Hanakiaka different than just Hawaiian theater, right? And trying to figure out and then pushing me into doing the research. And I've always loved the, you know, the 19th century Olalo Hawaii newspapers. So this Making the step to do the doctorate was really a great opportunity for me to nerd out and just be in the archives, which I love doing. It was just wonderful to commit to be in the newspapers day in, day out to get, you know, all the research done. So, yes, mahalo anui ya olua e rangila uohemi. You both made this, made this possible. Okay, so to the average person, they might think when they see a hanakiaka, they might just speculate that hanakiaka is simply an amalgamation of traditional performing arts, you know, those indigenous forms that we had here since 
time in memorial and the Western theater. However, in doing the research in the 19th century newspapers and then also looking into journals, writings from Kupuna in the early 1800s, I was able to identify different iterations of theatrical performance and really identify what the Kanaka Maoli aesthetics are of uh, Hanakiaka. So the term Hana, I'll start with that. The term Hana means to do work, to create. The term Kiaka is likely a transitor transliteration of Tiakiaka. And from the eighteen from the newspapers that started in eighteen thirty four Right around 1850, we get our first token of the term Hanakiaka. And this is written by a Kanakamali in the newspapers to describe a performance. Now, there are other iterations that are similar to Hanakiaka that we see in the newspapers. So we see the term tablo or kapalo, which is a tableau performance that may have had narration with song and chanting and dance and storytelling as well. Um, we also see the term kapolea or halali'i, which is a night of entertainment honoring the chief halali'i, who was a patron of the arts from the island of Ni'ihau and Kauai, who ruled on the islands of Ni'ihau and Kauai. Another word that we saw in, that I saw in John Papa'i'i's writings was this term loku. And this term loku is nightly gatherings of storytelling that infuse traditional performing arts in the storytelling. He describes these things, and this is prior to missionary contact, the times that he is describing. So prior to missionary, prior to, I guess, all white contact coming over to the islands, he has these stories about what he had witnessed. So in addition to that, we also have the term opella or opera that appears in the newspapers. So we see Kanaka Maoli having agency and creating all these types of works. Oh, one other term I might mention is a term of ho'ike'ike. Ho'ike'ike is a, to show, to demonstrate. So all of these terms, including hanakiaka, then become iterations of theatrical performance, theatrical storytelling. And we see this, you know, in the 19th century newspapers. The term Hanakiaka, my doctorate is based on, was finding, you know, the overarching term for these practices and the more dominant term that was utilized in the newspapers and was utilized even recordings that I um, found from the early 1900s with Kupuna retelling stories of things that they had witnessed when they were younger or in their youth or in their early adult years. So those uh, recordings from, say, the 1940s as well as the 1970s, we have Kupuna on those radio shows or being informants of people doing interviews for the Bishop Museum or other sorts of study. Hanakiaka was the dominant term, and therefore I went with that. And I wanted to clarify all of these practices and, and analyze what may be different from one to the other. 
And that all of that is in my doctoral thesis. So one thing I was able to do was to identify four kukulu or four pillars of Hanakiaka. So the four major characteristics, what makes Hanakiaka? And those four things are very much connected to identity, very much connected to what we value as Kanaka Maoli. Number one is mo'olelo. And mo'olelo is our term for stories. Mo'olelo is our term for history. Mo'olelo is also our term for stories that might have mystical quality to it. It might have fanciful tale involved in the storytelling. Following mo'olelo, the second kukulu is ku'oho, which is a term for genealogy. So one thing that was very evident was that each and every uh, theatrical piece that I found in the newspaper, no matter what the term was used to describe it, had a genealogical connection to those that were performing, those that were presenting the material. And of these four kukulu that I'm going to share, each and every one also appears in the contemporary hanakiaka that we practice through Kahalo Hanakiaka and now um, what we teach up at the university in the Department of Theater and Dance under the Hawaiian Theater Program. The third kukulu is Hananoeo. Hananoeo are art forms. They can be performing art forms. They can be visual art forms. But what was very often spoken about in the 19th century newspapers were the prowess of the performers in their use of language, their use of chant, their skills as dancers, as storytellers, as well as what they were wearing. So Hana Noel could be also the lei right? The flower garlands that they were wearing, which is a no'eo. It is a, a, a practice, a skill that is elevated in one's further practice of the skill. Also, there's descriptions of feather capes, and that was another hana no'eo from times past that continues today. So hana no'eo, whether it be visual arts or performing arts, those practices, many of which we have had since time immemorial that our ancestors practiced, whether they were doing pule or incantations to the gods, that was still performance for an audience, the akua being that audience. Those things are all at the foundation of Hanakiaka. And the fourth and final kukulu then would be Olelo Hawaii. Olelo Hawaii is Hawaiian language. Hawaiian language being the primary medium for uh, communication of the story, whether it be dialogue or poetry, chanting, song, those things are done in Olelo Hawaii. Mo'olelo, Ku'auhau, Hananoel, and Olelo Hawaii. Each one of those helps to create that foundation for the practice of Hanakiaka. And these are innately Kanaka Maoli values and expressions of art that serves the community of Kanaka Maoli.
you know, Hanakiaka provides a venue for Kanaka Maoli to articulate their voice, recount historical events, and promote Hawaiian epistemology, ontology, cultural values, and practices. We project our identity, we project our our consciousness in these practices. And I have seen, I have eyewitnessed the further understanding of one's history, one's self, and one's identity in the practice of Hanakiaka, as well as the articulation of thought and a closer connection to our kupuna and the aiding of fluency in language acquisition through this form. Over the past 20 some odd years that I've been very much involved in practicing Hanakiaka, I've seen people's involvement from my students to my friends, to my colleagues, and even to some of my mentors. Hanakiaka has awakened, has awakened us. It has empowered us to be who we are and to be who our ancestors want us to be. It has allowed us to reclaim our history, to reclaim our aina, and to reclaim our language in these practices. So for me, this form is very important to our expression as a people, and it's important for us to honor and elevate all that has come before us and to dream of all that will come after us. Mahalo. I have um, chicken skin. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for that, that beautiful genealogy. Yeah, as you were speaking, I was just thinking, so, I mean, I think folks who've listened to our podcast know, so I was uh, born and raised here in, in Hawaii on Oahu, but my ancestors do not come from this land. And so it's been interesting to, I think the question that I always ask myself is, you know, like, how do I be a good guest or a good settler? <laughs> how do I honor the indigenous peoples of this land, the Kanaka Maoli? And, you know, one of those ways that have come up is just being informed, right? Being educated about the history of this Paiaina and what has happened here. And so even as you're speaking, you know, I know the focal point of, you know, your research has been in the Hawaiian newspaper archives. Um, I'm, I, I'm aware, I think a lot of our listeners, a lot of the Salwatakin are, are stretched out across this vast ocean and um, they may not be aware of the history of Hawaii and this archive that exists and, you know, uh, the importance of language revitalization and what happened. And so I, I want to pose that thought before I go into this next question, which isn't really a question. It's more of a story. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I was in New York City and I had the privilege of attending the opening night of Awa'ia uh, Holding On, the off-Broadway production that you wrote and directed. I tell this story to uh, MLA, but I, I was there. I invited my roommate, who's Colombian. And when I went, I, I didn't realize it was in uh, both Olalo Hawaii and in English. And so um, I was sitting there thinking to myself, like, oh, I wonder what my roommate is thinking, <laughs> especially because <laughs> Spanish is his first language. And, but we got home and we debriefed and we were talking about it and processing it. And 
one of the things that came up for us was just how, you know, despite not having a light, uh, command of despite not understanding some things, the story really came alive for us. And uh, it was really beautiful to see this narrative about Hawaii, about uh, language, language revitalization, about these four students going back into the archives and drawing out this knowledge that's there. So I, I'm just curious. Uh, so this is a two part question and feel free to answer one or the other <laughs> <laughs> in terms of, you know, just something, a production of this, this immense power, this narrative. I'm really curious to if you would be willing to just speak to what your process was and then also just the process of birthing this into existence, right? To organize this massive feat to bring this production to New York City. And then also within that, if you can, you know, just give like a brief kind of analysis of why the Hawaiian newspapers are so important to Kanaka. And then also just, you know, your experience with these archives, because they are important and um, they hold so much knowledge. I, I just, I don't want to miss that part of the component of the story. Mahalo Anui, Brandon, for sharing your experience. And I'm so glad that you were able to experience, to watch Aua'ia holding on. And I will say, I'm going to answer the question, <laughs> but I did want to say that it was so humbling and so surprising to see so many people from Hawaii who made the journey to come and see our production. And each and every night, we sold out beyond capacity. And so much so that I think the closing night, it was a fire hazard. We didn't want to turn anyone away <laughs> at the door. But having people journey from Canada, from Washington, D.C., someone flew in from Seattle. There was people driving from Maine and Virginia and, you know, kind of all around to come and be a part of something Hawaiian. That was an amazing experience. And it was so evident that it was a Hawaii audience filled with other indigenous peoples too, right? There was other indigenous peoples that really got the story and was really there because they wanted to experience that. But it was evident that these people were from Hawaii because they didn't want to leave when the show was pow, right? When the show was over, they wanted to talk stories and we would spend, you know, a couple hours left in the theater just hanging out with people and, and having that community. So I'm very grateful for that opportunity. And it was an amazing experience for myself and the artistic team, as well as the cast and crew to have been able to share our story in Olala Hawaii on that stage in, you know, where most people consider the mecca of theater, right? And to have it received, acknowledged and appreciated was amazing. So I just wanted to say that. Coming back to the question about what it takes to birth something like this and to create this kind of a narrative. I want to share that, you know, for me over the years, and this is something that has been true from when I was a little girl, actually, like I would, and this is part where everybody goes, oh, oh, crazy lady. Yeah. But from when I was a young girl, I had, you know, this sense of things I had. Sometimes I would hear things or see things or see things in in the dream state. And so that's one of those tools that I have tried to sharpen over the years. And with Aua'ia holding on, you know, I was 
working on finishing uh, the writing of my doctoral thesis. And for a couple of years, there were things that I was hearing or seeing or having dreams about. And so I keep this journal and I put those ideas there, you know, when I wake up or when they happen in the day. And I just kept writing these things down. And so we're looking at about a two-year period where these images are coming or these songs or moments in history are coming. And I had no idea what the play was going to be. There was a series of things. The Bayonet Constitution was one. There was Robert Wilcox and the Wilcox Rebellion. And also the song, Nama Makakawa, composed by, you know, the late and dear Palani Vaughn, who was a huge fan of what we did with Laie Kavai, who came multiple nights to see that production. So all of these ideas was kind of percolating. They were presenting themselves and I was just pinning these things down, having no clue what the play was going to be. And I will mention that I was on a deadline. The script for that production that was slated for the fall of 2019 at Kennedy Theater was due on February 1st of 2019. And we were, you know, rolling up on the end of November 2018. And I I had notes. I had notes of all of these different things, but I didn't know how they came together. I submitted my doctoral thesis around the first week of December for review. And that was to be the draft that was going to go out to the international reviewer, the regional and national reviewer. Two days after I submitted that, I had a dream about these four students. And that was really the opening of my understanding (laughs) of what the play was going to be, what the story was going to be. And so the four students and their journey was representative of my journey and many of my, uh, my colleagues, my peers' journey when we engaged in learning Olelo Hawaii. And these four students ended up being kind of the range of experiences. And they also were, if you will, the string that put all the flowers on the lei together. And I was able to tie it off. So once that came, once those four students came, everything fell into place. Yeah. The idea of the kawa, sorry, between Manono and Kekuo Kalani and Kalani Moku, the struggle of religious practices and traditional ways of knowing with the introduced Christianity, that came into place. And then all of these other stories that was woven together by the students and their engagement and them having that hilinai and that trust that when they would recite the incantations, the doorways opened for them to have deeper understanding. 
And anyway, I wrote fiercely <laughs> for the month of December and January and did some revisions and did a couple of workshops um, with people that I trust greatly to talk through the ideas and to fine tune. And I was able to submit the script on February 1st. Yeah, it, in, a, in a nutshell, <laughs> I pay attention to signs, pay attention to the ho'elona, and then allow myself to be guided on how to um, present the story. I also want to share that in these endeavors, I always reach out to have an artistic team to carry certain aspects of the production. And so with Ia holding on, we were very fortunate to have Kumu Keave Lopez uh, take on many of the responsibilities with the hula that were created, as well as the chants and the incantations that were created for that. And then we had Kumu Kihe Nahale'a, who took on all of the contemporary music uh, for the production, as well as arranging new music, composing music. And then Kumu Kaliko Baker, who took on the kuleana of dramaturgy, as well as language coaching with the students. And I also believe he took on one of the pule or incantations for the production. So having that artistic team is also very important to give birth to a production like this, to allow it to manifest into fruition. And then trusting and those many hours of planning and doing the organizing and the logistics of how the rehearsal process is going to go and, you know, who are, who am I going to work with first? And then how we bring in people. Um, there's also one other key element that I will share. We like to have the, the artistic team. Um, we like to have a time for um, our students um, our community members, our designers, anyone who's going to work on the show with us to have them come and be with us for a weekend and only focus on the work. And during that weekend, we have some protocol and have people make a commitment to the work. And that commitment is something that bonds us for the time that we're working together. And it's a way for us to collectively get on the canoe together and paddle to our destination as a hui, as a group, as a collective. So that that's a bit of a summary of how those things come into be. I, I, I do feel that Al'a'ia was strongly influenced by my journey in pursuing a doctorate because that concept of research was very much something that underpinned the story, the telling of the story, and how learning language unlocks, yeah, it's a key to unlock the door to allow you to go deeper and to go further. Yeah, it's always a unique journey, and it's always a very rewarding process. Wow. 
I genuinely feel really, I had such an emotional response to your answer because, well, first of all, I'm very jealous and I'm very openly jealous about the fact that Brandon was able to come (laughs) and see your production in the flesh because I have been um, in awe of your work from afar for many years now and I had just missed your production in New York by a week. But I heard, yeah, stories from Brandon and from other people who had gone to see it that it was just as beautiful as, you know, you described just then the process of how you how you create and how you created this piece. And I also felt like a little bit confronted listening to you because I saw so many of my own creative habits in how you were explaining how you came about creating this piece. But also I felt really reassured in how you spoke about, you know, protocol and relationships and how that is a really important part of of the process, of the creative process. And, you know, building this sense of of community. I know that working in the theatre world, it can be very intense for a very short amount of time and you build these really strong connections with people you know, in a company and then after five to eight weeks or depending on however long you're working with them, you kind of like go off and sometimes never see them again or you see them maybe in another show in another context. And so just listening to the way that you spoke about how you listened to your creative process and you listened, you looked for signs and you trusted that they would emerge and reveal themselves when the time was ready, but also like when you were ready to receive them, but also interpret them as something that I, you know, really resonate with as someone who's, I think, constantly in a state of writer's block, (laughs) but um, trusting, right? Trusting that actually when the story is ready and when I'm ready and I'm in a space to receive it, it'll reveal itself. And the people that I'm meant to work with on that project will reveal themselves. So that was just such a generous answer. And I'm so overwhelmed, but so, so, so grateful to you for being so, yeah, so giving in your response. And I I wanted to share a quote of yours from an essay that you wrote called Reconnecting with the Depths of the Ocean Through Performance. And this essay really, really changed my life. Like I I can't do a podcast, (laughs) really explain quite how much impact it had on my life. But I just wanted to share this this tiny little extract with um, our listeners and kind of like contextualize it in order to move into the next question. So Haileopua writes, performing the chants and prayers of one's ancestors fortifies the bond between the generations by vocalizing the names and elements that speak to the very fiber of our being. The act of performance reestablishes a relationship with the ancestral wisdom of our people. When I came across this essay, I had finished my acting degree And I found this essay in, I guess, an anthology of essays written by Oceanic theatre makers at a time when I was really questioning whether I was on the right path and what it meant to be an actor and a storyteller and orator and asking myself, were they all the same thing? Are they different things? How did I embody them? And I felt like when I came across this essay, it felt it really did feel like a lightning bolt, like you were speaking directly to me <laughs> through this piece about something that maybe I had known all along, but not really articulated, mm-hmm. which is that storytelling is not only my inheritance, but my legacy. 
And I had followed this path to be an actor or be a storyteller because I felt some kind of, I don't know, greater responsibility to something that I hadn't quite yet understood yet. Mm -hmm. And so when I really, yeah, when I came across this, it just, it did really change my life because I was wrestling with the ethics of engaging with sacred ceremony or practices in storytelling, but also, you know, what it means to survive, you know, to make a living off, off storytelling, off theatre, of film and television. And so my next question is, I'm wondering for you, how do you negotiate moving between this fortifying of the sacredness of your bond with your kupuna and your community and hanakayaka and the commodification of Indigenous narratives and traditional knowledges? Well, hello, Anui, for that question and for sharing. It's very humbling to hear what effect that article had on you. And I'm grateful that at least one person read it (laughs) and and felt that it resonated with them. Thank you. Thank you. This is the first time I I think I'm hearing about this particular article. So mahalo Anui for sharing that. You know, the idea about negotiating between, you know, the sacred and the secular, I think as far as the sacredness with our, our lineage, our bond with our kupuna, the major thing is to embrace it. I think once we can embrace that and we ask for them to set us on the right path and, and to help us make those decisions so that we hold what is sacred, sacred, and we share what is noa, right? What is not filled with knowledge that shouldn't be shared, right? So noah would be the opposite of kapu. Sorry, my my brain just kind of hit a little bit of a pebble in the stream, but I'm going to try and pick this back up. Uh, the concept of Noah, right, is things that are not restricted. They might be knowledges or practices that can be put out there for wider consumption, right? The things that are sacred, the couple things, whether it be protocol or ahula or incantations, those are the things that, you know, we will never put out there, right? Because those are the things that are not for mass consumption. And, you know, a number of my close colleagues who are Hawaiian language teachers, who are hula masters, we have these conversations about Ike or knowledge not being Noah, right? So it, certain forms of knowledge is not for everyone. And when we're teaching in the institution up at the university, we negotiate this every single day when we walk into the classroom. What am I privy to share and what do I need to hold back on? Because it is people enroll at the university and they think they can learn whatever they want, right? And every knowledge should be provided to them, which is very different than traditional ways of knowing, right? And the perspective that our elders and ancestors had. Ike was not for everyone. So this is a great question. There is a sense of negotiation daily when we're in a rehearsal room or when we're in a classroom or when we're in a faculty meeting, constantly I am checking myself. And I think we do this. Is is it all right for me to share this? Or how can I share something that will hint at 
said what I want them to know, but not actually share things that have certain privileges to that knowledge. So on the question of the commodification of Indigenous narratives, I think if we are doing things for ourselves, if we are doing things to empower our community, if we are doing things to further elevate and honor our lahui and our kupuna, then the idea of commodification is, I'm not going to say it's null and void, but it's less important. I do feel that when we start exporting things, then we kind of move into commodification. But if I am doing hanakiaka primarily for my people and my community, I feel like the intention behind that work and that sharing is about empowerment and it's about strengthening the knowledge of our Indigenous narratives. And I would put that in contrast to someone who might be taking some form of knowledge, whether it be a hula or chanting and putting it out there with the expectation of increasing their wealth. Yeah, I I believe it goes back to intention. I may or may not have answered that question, (laughs) but it's, it's very challenging, you know, to a certain extent with the institutionalization of the Hawaiian theater program and the teaching of Hanakiaka, there was a lot of negotiation of how we would go about teaching that, you know, how I would go about sharing that practice and that knowledge, and then how I would be training the MFA students so that they are moving in a space that is respectful, that honors traditional practice and honors the legacy and honors where that knowledge comes from. So I think I cannot ever get away from negotiating. That That is going to be part of the process with each and every student who comes through the program because each of them comes with a, a different capacity, a different level of knowledge, a different level of uh understanding or practice within the community. And so each of them has a different need, if you will, right? So as a student comes into the program, there's this quick analysis that happens and deepens over the years as, you know, they work towards completing their degree and creating their thesis production. And I am analyzing and seeing what they need from me and where we might have to expand their understanding and where we might have to kind of pull back. And then also the negotiating with their kupuna and their kumu. If they come into the program having had 10 years in a halal, right, a hula school, that Kumu hula needs to be a part of the equation. So there's conversations about the knowledge that they've learned there as well and how that may or may not be shared in the work that they do and the work that they produce. So it can get very complex <laughs> when we talk about 
these negotiations and continuing to have those conversations though and continuing to be very transparent and having clear communication with the individuals that the student has learned with, especially in a cultural context, right? We're not going to have a conversation with who they took a a math class from, but (laughs) people that they have cultural knowledge from, they need to be a part of that, that conversation. Because when the student speaks, when the student writes, when the student presents, that knowledge might be reflected in that. And so we want to be sure that they feel comfortable with those narratives being shared. Yeah, I I see the rehearsal space and I see theater practices as, as also being sacred. And we never want to kind of violate that those exchanges that happen and the intimacy involved with the creation process. So I think as we move forward, we pay very close attention to the water that we travel in and make sure that, you know, we're not disrupting the flow of the water and that we learn to travel with that flow of the water. And and when the speed picks up, you need to pick up. When it slows down, you need to slow down too. And that's a negotiation process. Thank you so much for that really beautiful answer. I I lied and said that that was my last question, but then I actually had another question, but then you answered my question in your response. So, yeah, you did. You, I mean, you're such a beautiful story weaver that naturally it all kind of unfolded and the way you spoke about like a way moving forward, I think is really important and something that we're hoping to do, I guess, as we talk with people on Solwatakin is listening to how they have carved their own paths as thought leaders of Oceania, but also how they hope to carve new paths moving forward and support, you know, support people and our coming through these education institutions, coming through these sacred spaces, as you say, carve their own paths and to determine for themselves what agency looks like and what community looks like and what being in relationship with one another looks like in a really positive and beautiful way. So thank you so, 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 so much. Been a real privilege and a pleasure and I feel so lucky to have spent this time with you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just yes, just thank you. <laughs> Mahalo anuia olua, no ke kono ana maia u, e no hapu, ku kahi kahi aika manao. Mahalo, thank you both so very much for having me, and and I wish you all the best uh, with your podcast endeavors. This is a very exciting opportunity for voices to be lifted and stories to be shared, and I find great value in it, so mahalo. Our Talanoa today with Tammy had me reflecting on the ways that we return to our paths through home, through Aina, through Olelo and 
through Aloha. I was really struck by the signs left by Hokupuna and how instinctual it was for her to acknowledge, interpret and respond to their calls and how doing so instilled a sense of affirmation in her identity as a Kanaka Maoli storyteller. As mentioned in Aotearoa, Ha'iliopua expressed a tension between wanting to pursue a career as a theatre maker on the US continent and carving space for stories told by Kanaka for Kanaka through Hanakeaka. I can say with certainty that this is a common experience for many of our Solwata kin who pursue storytelling as a career, and often we choose the path of most resistance. So, I leave you with these final questions. What signs or roadmaps have your kupuna left for you? Have you heard, seen or felt them? And if not, who can you talanoa with to begin conversing with their calls? <laughs>